Welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our common life and the deep values of the people who shape it. Every episode I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or public profile and I ask them what is sacred to them, by which which I mean the deep values that they um, at least aspire to have guide their life. I speak to people from a really wide range of different backgrounds, um, professions, political tribes, with the aim to grow myself in empathy and curiosity. And I hope to help you as a listener understand why people might get to different positions than you have reached or might just be different from you. It came out of a 2017 feeling in me that the rising polarization and tribalism that we were seeing was just not good for any of us. And so I developed this practice of deep listening, not arguing, but just seeking to understand a wide range of people. And the person that I have been trying to understand in the conversation that you're about to hear is Anne McElvoy. Anne is a very successful and senior journalist. She went straight into a graduate trainee scheme after Oxford. She was a columnist in The Telegraph, and she has held a range of editorship roles in The Evening Standard, The Spectator, The Economist, and she's now the head of audio at Politico. She also acts as a panellist on the BBC Radio 4 programme, The Moral Maze, and a presenter on Radio 3's Free Thinking. We spoke about growing up in the North East, going to a Catholic comprehensive school, what drew her to journalism, what she's trying to do, and why she's increasingly concerned about the way we have public debates and what she's trying to do about that. There are some reflections from me at the end, but I really hope you enjoy listening. And I am going to kick off uh, with no soft warming up question. We're going to go deep fast. Tell me, what bubbled up for you as sacred in your life? I find the word difficult because I am in that category, depending on my mood and the view of religion, which is that I'm rooted in it. And I don't like a kind of knee-jerk antipathy to religion. But my relationship with the Catholic Church has been more off than on since I was about 13. At the same time, and not only to get the benefits of marriage and sometimes education, sometimes not, we've had a merry mix in our household of observance and non-observance. It does matter to me, I think, that religion counts in some way in our society, in our thinking. So I'm more attracted to the word sacred when people are trying to do down religion than if you were to say to me, oh, how sacred are you finding uh, this or that experience? So I think that's funny. Someone once described this relationship with faith as lapsed but defensive, which I think probably gets it. Yes, that's beautiful. Um, Can you think of any, um, maybe related to religion or more broadly, kind of principles or values we, which have functioned as sacred in your life. And you sometimes know because you, they feel transgressed when someone tries to ask you to compromise on them. I think that's a very good way to put it. And it reminded me of something my father said, and he was hard that generation. He was also an older father when he had me and he'd been through the war and he'd been injured. And he'd also you know, seen quite active combat um, in the Larkery Islands, which was you know pretty nasty, close-up, hand-to-hand combat, which is where he, he got a lot of shrapnel in, in his legs, which I only 
discovered really in, in older age when it became a problem for him. And he said to me uh, when I wasn't being in a very sacred phase about going to, to church at all, he said, look, I don't think that uh, having a, a religious side of my life has made me a better person, but I think I might have been a worse person without it. Mm. And he alluded just two sort of things that had gone wrong or things that he'd witnessed in wartime or how he had dealt with moral conundrums. And I think that stuck with me when you say what meant something or means something to me about the word sacred. It's just an, a little extra check on just maybe doing something that's unkind or that's not necessary. And in a world, and I'm in a very competitive professional world, I'm sure a lot of your guests in different ways are, and quite often I do seek my own advantage and I can be very ruthless. And I think one of the things that the sacred does is just, even if it's, I'd like to think it's 10% impact, it's probably a, a lot of weeks, more like you know two or three, but it's just that little bit that says, actually, I shouldn't have done that and I should send a note being a bit kinder or I could do this, but actually, how is this person going to feel? And you could say that's just, you know, a lot of people who don't have any faith, I hope, think in the same way. But there's just that little bit that thinks that's, you know, the religion that I was instilled in me was to think about that. And it's that side of the mm. Christian message that is about your neighbour and not just your duty, but that you would... Think of them not only as a neighbour, but as a person, I suppose. And it's easy to forget that, isn't it? We're disaggregated. We're speaking on a screen. You know, we're images to each other. We're sounds, we're images, we're messages, we're texts, we're annoying emails when we've had enough. And how do we just keep looking through that and see that we're having personal interactions and that faith informs it, even if it's at the margin? Yeah, that's beautiful. I can sort of hear... A, a sense of the sacred functioning as or like your conscience on the bits of you that would mm. otherwise be ruthless and maybe depersonalizing. I'd love to hear a bit more. One of the things you said in an interview about your uh, Radio 4 show, Across the Red Lines, was that our formative experiences and our life stories have a long tail informing of the opinions that we might think of as strikingly rational. So I'm going to um, push you a little bit if that's okay. There's not loads about you in the public eye. I'd love you to, to paint a picture of Anne growing up in County Durham with this kind of Catholic element. What were you like? What were the big ideas in the air? So I grew up in, as you say, very much um, in a, a Roman Catholic world, in my education, in my household. I think my parents, um, who had married late, uh, neither of them had been married before. There was a bit of the sense of that kind of wartime experience, which I think had disrupted some of their, their lives and their decisions. There was a sense from childhood, I should be telling you about my baptism, because, uh, yeah, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, as they say, uh, in The Sound of Music. But I have a very funny baptism story, which I really wish I, I had been uh, conscious of. At the time, I grew up in a little village called Dipton in County Durham. And my parents went to the local church. Actually, it was split between two churches, depending on the mood of my mother, because one was modern and she like, sometimes she thought that was fine. And then as, yeah, as you will, uh, uh, certainly uh, a lot of uh, C CB people who have had this experience, particularly Catholics, had that sort of experience of the mass being very updated uh, from the late 60s into the 70s. And my mother hankered sometimes for the old hymns and the old sacred hearts and what shall I render thee? 
um, yeah, all of these, you know, which could pour out of me even now. So she would then sort of go up the road the other way to Broom's Church, which is very remote and in the broom, which was the uh, middle of a sort of yellow kind of gorse-like plant that we, we have in northwest Durham. And so, so I was very sort of brought, like, wondering what mood my, particularly my mother, I think, made this decision of what sort of mass were we were going to get on a Sunday. And of course, as a kid, I wanted the short one. So it was like, please make it modern and have lots of sort of guitar, guitar strumming in it. <laughs> but my should return to my baptism, the church burnt down. It was very unfortunate. And the church had fire and burnt down uh, uh, the days before my baptism, which I think was in a kind of latter part of the year, you know, about six months after I'd been, been born. And so I was baptised in a yellow plastic bowl that was used mainly for the washing up. And my mother said, as the water went in, she could sort of see there were just ever so slight traces of the, you know, she thought it was going to bubble up into a fairy liquid moment. Some people talk about having good fairies at christenings. I think she thought it might be literal. So she always says that, you know, I started out in in, the, in a kind of disruptive way that I intended to go on. And the uh, priest who did it was Father Caden who became the priest to Tony Blair, Cherie Blair as the Catholic, and later to Tony Blair in Sedgefield when he uh, moved across the aisle from Church of England to Catholicism. So we became friendly then. And obviously, like a good journalist, I wanted to know all about the inner faith life of the Prime Minister and his late path to Rome. But he only remembered me because he baptised me in a plastic bowl, which probably would stay in your mind. Yes, definitely. And you've alluded to your childhood being um, a place where ideas were talked about, thought about. Was it just the three of you? Did you have siblings? Tell me a bit about that. No, I was an only child. And partly because my parents had married so late, I was one of, you know, really in, in the circumstances, not quite a miracle baby. I didn't want to overdo it, but my mother was 44. Uh, when she had me and, you know, had only um, been married for a, a year. And I think we were definitely in the, you know, the no sex before marriage uh, realm there. So no, I was really, you know, I think they were as surprised uh, as anyone to find uh, th that she was pregnant. And so I was the only child. Um, my mother taught nurses at the local hospital, at Shot Shotley Bridge Hospital. She was absolutely one of those very clever, questing people who had had a, a decent, solid education, but there was from that background and where she was and the kind of remoteness of, relative remoteness of growing up in a former mining community, albeit with access. I mean, she was always heading off to, to Durham to talks at the university. She was very interested in conservation. So she got about a lot, you know, wasn't brought up in a cloistered world, but she certainly had no formal higher education. And she met my father who was um, a sort of, uh, what do you call, laundry chemist. who so was head of sort of cleaning, which is actually an incredibly important role across hospitals. And he ended up doing that across a number of, of hospitals, but they were very different in that he was a sort of self-taught out of the army into the laundry business, where he, as he puts it, uh, nearly helped set up heart and clean, in which case we would have been a lot richer. And then he thought, oh, these, you know, these sort of businesses, uh, who knows if they'll ever work. He didn't believe that uh, that washing machine, you know, it was, there was a laundrettes. They were supposed to set up laundrettes. And he was, a, he was of the it'll never work persuasion. Of course, laundrettes became very successful for many decades. <laughs> Um, so he ended up uh, as, a, as a laundry chemist in the NHS. And my mother taught nurses and was an examiner. 
and was a very, very good um, sort of, if you're on the academic end of the nursing profession. So that was really my world. But they did always have ideas and debates about ideas, including about faith, um, certainly about politics. And we debated a lot. My mother, certainly from 1979, when I was a teenager, had had enough of trade unions. She was disappointed with it. It was a sort of Labour monoculture, really, you know, County Durham to with a little bit of uh, third party sort of uh, SDP had a bit of a moment later, but she was fed up with the Labour Party. She didn't like uh, the trade unions, which she particularly in the health disputes. My father was Labour through and through and would always have been so. Hmm. But my mother had a, a sort of flirtation with uh, with Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and I think she would have, was about actually to, to, to come back to, to Tony Blair in 97 and she died two weeks before the election. So we'll never really know. Wow. So even in your house, there was kind of different political tribes and it was all up for grabs. Do you ever remember finding it uncomfortable to talk about ideas or did it always feel like just part of your home life? You know, I was really fortunate that way, given that if you say sort of on paper, when I was applying for university, I would absolutely, and I rightly have qualified as coming from an underserved area. I didn't have parents with massive formal education. You know, they had made their way, but they were thoughtful, intelligent people. And that always has guided my view of how politics policy and education policy should approach people. It's not always, is it, as a, Elizabeth, as simple as it looks when you see the sort of socioeconomics. People can be in one group, or we lived really simply in, you know, a, a village which was in a wild and beautiful place since the mines uh, had closed, but it was also very stressed. I mean, in, in the rather awful language of the time, you know, the villages around it were, were being sort of described as Category D villages, which where no investment in infrastructure were disappearing. Housing was very cheap. Yeah. But it was hard to find. I mean, people who were interested in ideas found each other. And that, I've often thought, is a clue to communities as well. It's some of the most interesting conversations and, in a way, you know, informed thinking and got me ready for dialogue in journalism and in politics later. And from university was, I felt, I, you know, I heard huge arguments about the minor strike, for instance, uh, growing up and not just the which side are you on, but people like my mother who were on kind of both sides at once. You know, she gave, uh, she wanted to sort of help miners' welfare, but she really loathed Arthur Scargill. She loathed the strike and she didn't think it should be happening. Yeah. So that, that sense that people can be, which I think we sometimes lose, and we know in the public debate how easy it is to lose it, that they're not just this one tone, one note thing. And sometimes politics behaves as if they are, hence the across the red line, a um, show that I do on Radio 4. But yeah, we did argue about pretty much everything. And uh, I think I've once, maybe, you know, you've, you've read it, told the story in a, a column when I made, was thinking about how to make across the red line resonate for people who have different views or their past informs their views, but are they aware of it? Do they want to be aware mm. of it? And, but we, we had this massive row and my friend, Andrea, was staying um, after school on it was Thursday night. We always watch Question Time. Yeah together and then we'd continue question time in kind of living room to about midnight and she said to me when we went upstairs you know when you had your friend to stay in those days you always shared the bedroom mm. didn't you and you sort of lay there on your mattresses and and died by saying she said I'm really sorry your parents had that big row and I went oh my no that's just like what we do on a Thursday and it was really interesting to me that she didn't you know her obviously she just came from a place where that would have been seen as strife yeah but we enjoyed it. You know, I think occasionally it was more, there was sometimes a little bit of 
I think around religion, it could get a bit more sensitive if my mother didn't like the sense, which I had that teenage way sometimes of dissing it. She didn't like that. And she thought that was bad for people who, who you know, lived by their religion or placed great trust in it yeah. or didn't have anything else. And she thought I was a bit harsh sometimes. But, you know, I think, hey, yeah. now that I've got a teenager or three, I'm like, yeah, I'm right there. So I have to confess something to you, Anne, and this happens to me a lot on this podcast. I research someone, I kind of read yeah. about them, and I start with this very two-dimensional picture of them in my head. And then as I research, they kind of grow and complexify as you're doing. And I did that terrible thing of uh, basically taking your voice and your confidence and associating them with, oh, well, clearly she went to a private girls' school. Um, how much do you f- experience that in public with these ways we cluster? Uh, and how much have you experienced it with, with where people expect you have, to have come from? This is great question I know we're not supposed to say that's a great question on podcast but I do think that is a great question and I don't think anyone's ever asked it but I think you're right I think if you're quite sort of chatty confident maybe a little bit I came up at a time when I think women in journalism had to fight a bit for the leadership roles I don't mean that they weren't very successful journalists but there was a sort of sense I remember saying to my bosses at Radio 4 it's lovely to do this in that program but actually if you think about it the formative intellectual voices, the Andrew Mars of that era, Melvin Bragg, the Dimbleby's. It was always like, they'll tell you how the world works and then you can come on and have a little chat about the rest of it, you know, and talk about you know, health or something. Um, so I've always not felt constrained in any way by that and always been a bit sort of probably a bit chatty and, and noisy. But it is interesting that people do associate it with background. So I... I don't know that anyone said to me, you must have been to private school before, but I think there's sometimes that association or that you went, let's be honest, you know, I've found great state schools for my children in London, which are closer in their demographic to private schools than the one I went to. I went to St. Bede's Catholic Comprehensive in Lanchester, go Bede's. And it was very, very solid. It had been a, a grammar school, but it was comprehensive from the time I went. So it was fully Combit had some great things. It had like a lot of comprehensive schools with, you know, quite big intakes from different uh, parts of, of the area had some some problems, I think, with that. But it was partly that, partly as you suggest, you know, the home background and and things, you know, to give to you credit, you know, growing up in a house where you have Radio 4 on as opposed to not introducing children young to these days you can get other things. Other podcasts are available. But it does make a difference, I think, because, you know, once we'd had our argument about which church to go to or what we thought of the Labour Party or CND, that was another really big, mm. big dividing yeah. line at, at the time. You know, y- y- I knew that I was able to sort of air my arguments. And then I did go to Oxford. So quite often I will get Oxford educated. And we go, oh, and it's like, yeah, but the, the bits before were not, yeah. you know, quads and you know hanging out with hooray henry's it, i mean yeah. i grew up in a village in county durham and i went to school yeah. on the bus like, like like what i call normal school some people always just make or is it particularly at uh, more conservative yeah. newspapers or they would sort of talk about you know state schools i said well for most people i just call it normal just school, school. <laughs> yeah 
School. Yeah. Thank you. I find, even though it probably makes me look a bit bad, I find airing my, because I think we all do it. We all have these cognitive shorthands. We're scanning someone for, okay, what box do they go in? What are my associations? Am I therefore drawn to them or repelled by them? And um, I, 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 yeah, I find surfacing all these unsaid things uh, helpful. Tell me, how was your experience at Oxford? Oh, it's great. Um, I'm in that fortunate position of someone who absolutely flourished there. And I made a lot of friends across uh, all sorts of politics, all sorts of backgrounds. And I was incredibly well supported. Were you in the union? Uh, no, I was a charwell person. I, I set out, you know, to do student journalism mm-hmm. with a lot of other brilliant uh, student journalists who are still around uh, in public life, not yet you know, not yet to put out to grass. Um, Christina Lamb, the great war correspondent on the, the Sunday Times, Rob Ray, who was until recently a big news figure with the BBC. Um, it was a big group of us, really, who were all elbowing our way through Charwell. Um, Adrian Monk, who uh, was practically in charge of the World Economic Forum under Klaus Schwab for a long time. You know, so this little group of us who were all together. David Miliband was making his way through Labour politics. Mm. We were all, I would say we were all friendly or frenemies in that uh, university. And Boris Johnson, not to be forgotten, was uh, becoming president of the Oxford Union. So I, I went to the union a lot. I liked the debates. I thought about doing it myself. And then I actually, that is a little bit the state school thing. At that time, the union was like fabulously uh, inward-looking public school. I mean, it was the very odd state schoolie who was seen as a sort of white raven. And it wasn't, I just thought, I, I don't think I he can be bothered with this. So I thought, actually, it'll be too much to try to do that. And I wanted to be quite academic. Yeah. So I became editor of Charwell and uh, held Boris's feet to the fire as president of the union, which is so much more fun. And I think he's said to me on a number of occasions that I've always looked vaguely disappointed at the end of any encounter with him, uh, which can happen. <laughs> but, you know, we, we have good relations because once you've sort yeah. of... When you've been students together. ...been around as, you know, sort of stu- student, kind of ambitious students, I think you always have yeah. something in common, even if, yeah. <laughs> shall we say, for all the rotten roll of... Of uh, of the Boris Boris Johnson years, you've never given me a fair chance. Well, did you have? Do you have? I sort of don't want to assume it, but you know, in your house growing up, you had one very committed Labour person and one person who mm. was beginning to question mm. that. A developing political philosophy, a sense of where you, what your political values were. <laughs> I'm just trying to make sure I don't retrofit, which is the great danger in this question, isn't it? Is to sort of... <laughs> Tidy up the story. It's really interesting. I think I knew... I was always very against extremes and I was always uncomfortable when I came up against them. And that could sometimes be difficult if you're in a world where... If you take, for instance, a group, I always sort of think of it as the sort of northeast teacherocracy, you know, the pro-CND think that they hate Margaret Thatcher, you know, with sort of visceral loathing and partly because of impacts that she'd had. But I think it was much more than that. I think it was a partisanship and also as kind of a failure to understand that your own world is, is part of a, however stressed it may be, however strongly you feel it's part of a national picture and an international picture. And I think I really did, and I hope I'm not 
sort of patting myself on the back too much, and I probably am. But from early on, I never liked that. And I was quite challenging even to my teachers because I did feel, you know, the, there is a bit of the only religion is labour and it is a bit grinding. Um, and I've talked a lot with German friends about that. I had the same experience of saying, yeah, it's a bit like that. You know, the teachers are always SPD. They were always social democrats. And at some point you think, well, hang on, but the country seems to be voting for something else. So what's going on here? I mean, is it? Yeah, and there was also that sense of, I think it's called the sort of bad faith argument, you know, that they're being fooled. And if they only knew, it recurs quite a lot. You know, you sometimes hear it about Brexit, you hear it about uh, from Jeremy Corbyn about, you know, on that wing of the Labour Party. And I think I became quite sceptical about this from about 15, 16 and quite challenging. Um, I think, of course, it was socially just not at all acceptable to have much interest in conservatism. So that, for me, came later when I was able to... I mean, it really, I, other than people like my mother who were a bit getting a bit fed up with the Labour Party, so they were being driven mm. that way, they were not... You know, but I think a lot of Labour people, as Tony Blair put his finger on and built the vote base from it, are naturally small-c conservative, like my mother. You know, she was conservationist. She didn't like too much change too fast... She grew up in a family. Her uh, father had had been a very dominant figure and had been the sort of what they call the the deputy, the de the head of effectively making the pit operational, looking after the miners. Mm. But he'd risen from being a a miner himself, and I think she was very much like you have to look after people, but there's also self responsibility is a big mm. thing. So I think that that weight where it was difficult was then I my, my first serious sort of love affair when I was. 17 with someone um, who was very sort of politically engaged on the, I wouldn't, he was certainly in no way a sort of crazy lefty. He was, he was a very thoughtful man, but, you know, it was absolutely, you know, we went on the day, it was a, a sort of CND march. Well, it wasn't much of a march, really. It was like a little group walking to Pontop Pike, which I think is in some way connected to being an early warning signal. It's a broadcast, you know, station thing up there. Uh, big mast just above where I lived. Um, but to be honest, that was kind of for dating and not for CND. Uh, but I did meet through that a more interesting, probably more university-oriented group of people who had those politics. And many years later, when my mother was very ill, a lady called Thea Carms, and she was the absolute, she was, in fact, Palestinian. She was pro-PLO, she was CND, she was, you know, if you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it, as Billy Bragg once brilliantly put it. And she's a very, very nice and interesting woman. Her politics were like fully, as I understood it, just in case she hears it. But I would say it were very sort of Corbyn-y. And um, I was in a sort of woebegone state, checking out of the local supermarket just before Christmas. My mother was very, very ill by this point, wasn't going to live much longer. And I thought, oh, I'd better make some Christmas lunch for my father, a miserable experience. So I went and got this sort of tiny, tiniest turkey and I was standing there, you know, very distracted. And behind me, as 20 years on, was Thea. So we said hello and things. And she said, after a bit of, you know, what are you doing? Oh, you're a journalist. And then she said, now, about the PLA, I just want to make... <laughs> and so we had to start having this argument in checking out of... You, know, you were thinking, I really Stanley's, don't want to talk Stanley's about supermarket this. With, I'm standing there with a sort of sad turkey. And I, so, you know, I, I enjoyed that. And I really liked that there were people who, you know, who challenged yeah. my views. But yes, I think I was be, becoming a quite sort of a centrist and I got interested in the economic argument I, I knew there was something wrong with the argument that it was just about spending you know the northeast absolutely needed more investment but I kind of guessed that probably wasn't going to be 
the full picture. Yeah, the only answer. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you uh, dive straight into journalism and have had this incredibly um, stellar career. What do you... I kind of want to know what you love about it. And I'm interested underneath that. If you have it as a sense of vocation, if you if you have a kind of philosophy yeah. of what journalism is. I think I do. My husband is also a journalist, um, says that I, for me, it's a vocation. He said for him, it was something he sort of came to by trying other things and then thinking, hey, well, you know, interest in current affairs and I like to communicate. And But for me, it was always clear. I mean, it was clear I really used to write up reports when I was a teenager and stick them in scrapbooks. And I had all those tells. <laughs> kind of, I think it would be be hard to say I wasn't going to be in some way in the media. Vocations are really interesting word. Um, I think the vocation came for me really when I went to cover East Germany and had that very good fortune. I had invested a lot in East Germany and spent a lot of time there in the late 80s. And I was thinking about this, about that, I was preparing for, for your podcast, Elizabeth, that that's also an area where when you say vocation, to me, it was important. Everyone says they want to tell the truth, hopefully, to enlighten to me, it was also, I had a very strong sense of maybe I'm really lucky to be able to go to places that I think people I know would be really interested in this or that angle if I could only bring it home to them. So how would I do it? So often in East Germany, as well as covering the big story about Politburo and as we headed towards the fall of the wall, I did a lot of reporting from churches and from the, the green and peace movement in churches. And in a sense, some of the some of the defaults of some of those people were a bit like the old, you know, sort of CND bunch I'd kind of sort of skirted arguments with when I was a teenager. But the context was so different because they were opposing an authoritarian regime. They were taking immense personal risks to their safety. And uh, many of them were prepared to go to prison or be kicked out of the country for it. And that brought me a bit back towards the church, actually through the Lutheran um, tradition of this strong engagement. I'm not saying there wasn't also great. Mm. Catholics in East Germany sort of slowly were in, encouraged, including by their not great archbishop, uh, who was a bit too close to the system for my liking, to keep their heads down. But, you know, these extraordinarily brave people, Christian Führer, the uh, Pfarrer, pastor in Leipzig, um, uh, the uh, Schorlemmer, Friedrich Schorlemmer in Wittenberg, the home of Luther, who was even more, I think he was certainly to, to the left of Christian Führer. But they had something in common that they saw this very clever opportunity to use these peace prayers as a way which the state couldn't really say it was against peace because it kept saying it was for peace because that's why it kept like, trying to infiltrate all my friends in CND. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, it, wanted, it was pro-Moscow and it was really the song sheet, the hymn sheet came from Moscow. But it was harder than if it was gathered in churches to break it up as the tensions grew. And then, of course, these churches and these peace prayers became the most extraordinary gathering place for thousands, tens of thousands of people who were not uh, there primarily at all for the religion, but they were looking for new centres of leadership and thought. And it was the sacred space that offered them mm. that. And that, you know, was inspiring in a way that still makes, you know, makes my... Yes, sort of gives you goosebumps to think about that because I know also think I, at what point would I have joined in? You know, if I'd lived in that society, you know, I was doing quite nicely. I'd probably got to some, you know, form of decent higher education or would I have kept my head down and for how long? So when people talk about biographies and who joined the Stasi and what they did, I'm always a little bit, yeah, I'm, yeah, 
loathe the, the Stasi and it destroyed the lives of a lot of people very close to me. But I also do, as you first question said, you know, there's that little bit of the 10% of you that says, what would I have done? And that's a question that religion maybe helps you mm. put. Yes, it maybe asks it more regularly and insistently um, within the rhythms and the rituals, I think. That's what I value about it. Yes. The, I find it hard to stay loyal to my values. I need a lot of scaffolding. <laughs> and that's what my practice of faith often gives me, I think. And also, don't you find that when you're uh, in a situation where you see, and I think about it in Ukraine today, here's the thing about it, because I was later you know, covered wars in the Balkans, Chechnya, I was Moscow bureau chief for the Times, and I have a lot of very close Russian friends, and some are still there, and some are keeping their head down, and some have gone to Baltic states, etc., or just trying to get out anyway. And I think where faith fits in their lives, and what you call the scaffolding, and the way that the Ukrainian churches in London have fulfilling that function mm. um how do you keep that scaffolding when you know when your life is under such pressure yeah. that you know you talk about faith my faith being tested because i don't like aspects of the catholic church which i don't but now imagine having it tested because it's illegal know, to practice just a merciful or, god yeah. uh, it doesn't seem to have like yeah. you know let you down if 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 you're uh, under bombardment or indeed if you know you've lost people are in danger of losing people in the war or you've had to flee so you've lost that connection to your as you nicely put it your scaffolding your weekly worship or even your monthly drop-in or just your yeah. sense of nodding when you pass the church and thinking oh yeah no I was married there uh, and I think that sense of religion as a kind of support through incredibly difficult times for people mm. is something I sort of learned to appreciate rather better once I, I'd done the harder side of European history. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a very nosy question, which I think for British people is more intrusive than asking about their sex life, which is, what does your practice look like now, your spirituality? Where does where do those kind of deeply profound metaphysical things show up in your life? Yeah, my answer might be a bit disappointing in that I'm not a regular observer. Um, I did the, the thing with, children of saying well, we should if we're going to do some of them were going, they were all initially in Catholic education we should actually go to church you know we don't want to be those people who sort of drop their kids at school and then stop going to church I did find you know some of the we weren't lucky with our local church and the preaching just didn't didn't resonate with me at all and so I sort of looked around and just started to go to different services if I was somewhere uh, very eclectic. I, I, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet for me. I will go to a Church of England uh, service. I've been to a Ukrainian service when I was... Where was I? Somewhere very old. It wasn't in Ukraine either. You know, I was just in a city somewhere in uh, you know, in, in Western Europe. will come back to it. I think it was in Rome, actually. It was a beautiful Ukrainian church. It was in Rome. And I just thought, you know, I'll go there. Yeah. Sunday morning. And there was this wonderful noise coming. I was, I was thinking, oh, I'll go down to... Vatican, but then I'll start arguing in my head with Pope Francis, so maybe I won't do that. And I ended up suddenly stand, mainly, uh, thank you all, almost all stand in the Ukrainian Orthodox uh, Church at the back, and there was incantation and music, and I knew it a bit from the Russian, but it was obviously different. It was in Ukrainian, it was slightly different. Uh, rituals, 
And I found that very comforting and restorative. Mm. So I think that's, it does look a bit spotty, my observance. There's no judgment here. That said, when, uh, no, no, I sort of think about it myself. It wouldn't be a bad idea to go a bit more often. What I do like to do, and uh, my husband does as well, so this works out quite well. If we're in a city, we will always, we will spend, we were in a city, Girona, in Spain that I didn't know recently, and he went to the cathedral and said, you know, actually, cathedral is knockout. We should, you should go tomorrow. And I said, well, let's both go back together and let's spend proper time in the cathedral. So quite often what we'll do is we do the sort of run around and look at the wonderful windows and read the history, but then try to spend maybe an extra 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, well, this would be, you know, it'd be a trades description problem to call it prayer. But I do sit and try to shut out. <laughs> You know, the just thinking, oh, this is quite interesting because it was you know, the seat of the you know, somebody, somebody's from 1600. But I try not to do that. I try to just sit. And I was worrying about my daughter's A-levels. And then I started to think about, this, you know, <laughs> I figured out this little point in praying for A-levels because I had three of them. It's just like they do what they do. But then I started to think, well, what is it you're really praying for? And is it because we all know it's crazy to pray for you know, three A's or whatever. So I started to think, oh, what is it that you're really praying for? Is it the person or is it that you support the person better? And so that, that mm. took me into quite a nice reflective space. So that was my last uh, encounter with the Almighty. And thanks for the A-levels. <laughs> there. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was close, but we got there. Um, do that. And, and then I think the other thing I do, which is sort of mental and... Uh, I bet a lot of people talk to you about this uh, on the show, Elizabeth, is I do yoga and I like to try to, I find, you know, I'm really interested in the way that yoga, you can be in this sort of sweaty gym and they'll be really full and there's people in terrifyingly tight lycra. Actually saying, do the same things that we, you know, we do in religious observance in the Christian tradition in the mass about offering things up and sacrifice, not, not, sacrificing in the sort of uh, perhaps the way of, of the Catholic mass, but offering it up for something that isn't yourself or thanking yourself for taking time. So a bit of me thinks these things are called borrowed and it's all a bit of, you know, modern hokery. But I am interested in the way it, it does sort of meet partly a religious need. Mm. And even if it is in the sort of few percent zone, yeah. I think that's probably a bit of my where my sacred goes these days. Yes. Um, to namaste world thank you so much for sharing that and i think yeah it's for lots of us it's this kind of patchwork of moments that we don't always have language for um and that we don't always have a lot of scaffolding to help us with but we know we need them um i wanted to ask about across the red line and you have had this career where you've done a lot of classic debates we cross over briefly on the moral maze there's a lot of news nighty and uh and, and let's just uh, get the two, and I remember this from casting the moral maze, let's just get the two, and the, and the code is clearest, but what we really mean is ex- most extreme um, forms of the arguments and put them up against each other. People who don't have a desire to caveat or add nuance um, because that's, and, and it was for a good reason. It was because that was the clearest way to give the listener a sense of the options or the reader. You know, this is how we show them uh, all the different ways you can think about this and then we test the things. But you have clearly come to the conclusion that that has, it may be deep problems or is certainly not all we need. What is it that you've learnt through doing Across the Red Line? 
I think you put your finger on why we sort of came up with it. It was basically in a discussion with Phil Tinline, a very good documentary maker that I'd worked with at the BBC, who's also an intellectually questing person. And I think we both knew that when we were doing, we'd, we'd made lots of 10-part series about conservatism, socialism, liberalism, and they were storytelling about how these ideas came to be. They were not trying to say, is, is this right, wrong, good or bad? And then we just, I suppose I said to them, Phil, do you not sometimes feel when you're in an argument that there's a, initially I wanted to call it Cliff Edge, probably a terrible name, but that was what the, the thinking came from, well, where is the Cliff Edge of my own certainty here? And so let's say you take uh, people who are very strongly, very liberal on immigration and very hostile to what Suella Braverman is, is is doing on immigration or asylum seeking. And but basically you're, you know, you kind of think the more the merrier. But do you really then, like at what level, you know, is there any level of immigration that you would say the country can't absorb or communities struggle with or will have adverse consequences? And I think for most people, they'd find it kind of difficult to put figure on that. But it clearly exists. So to me that was a sort of cliff edge in my own thinking. And I think it exists for a lot of people, and I always ask people in the, the wrap-up on Across the Red Line, is where they feel least comfortable about their own argument. Because I think that's where you find that space that you're referring to. And as you say, if you've done those bookings, and people get very trained to come in and say, I want to win this argument. I am so going to win this argument that we're going to have on this And that's podcast. what all the incentives are set up to do, right? Your incentive is not yeah. to listen and change your mind. Your incentive yeah. is to win. Yeah. And is that, whether people change their mind is always a moot point. A lot of people ask that, and as you can imagine, big picture questions. And also, if you're invested enough to, because you've spent your life uh, campaigning about it or come to a view of something, or you're a journalist who's sort of out there in one position on the government, on the economy, on it, the Russia crisis, on America, you're unlikely to go, do you know what? I've just had a moment. It's like it's Damascene conversion. But what I do think you do get, what I've really enjoyed is the moment when we had a wonderful moment and I think it was actually very early in the, the first series when Charles Moore, a um, you know, great figure of a conservative thought, biographer of Margaret Thatcher, editor of the Daily Telegraph for many years, debated with Hugh Muir from The Guardian, um, now of The Guardian, who had been the only black British reporter in the newsroom when Charles had been editor in his pomp at The Telegraph and also in a time when they, you know, nobody seemed to think that was odd or that something perhaps should be done a bit more about it and he just ended up you know saying to Charles Moore that do you understand a bit more about what that was like and he said I have a terrible time I'm just telling you it was quite odd and uh, Charles Moore said if I'd had your life experiences which also meant if he were to change his race he said I would think more like you than I think like me now and I think once you've got there, it's not that he, he you don't agree. I mean, one's on the right and the other's on the left. But we'll get to that point when you say, I do see if these things were different, that I might be different. Now, to me, that's a much more imaginative world where you can start to have a, another conversation than if I simply sat them down and said, you're left, you're right, and then give them one a football to kick about. I can tell you exactly which girl they'll kick it yeah. into. And so can you, yeah. not just because you've been a booker on shows, yeah. but so can uh, a nice proportion of the audience. It comes back who to... Who always get in for, you know, touch and say they like that aspect. Yeah, forgive me. It, but it comes back to what you said very early on about your sacred. It's that ability to see someone else as a full person, not as a yes badge, you know, or a... 
representative of a position. And it's hard, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's hard when you encounter people whose views you find so objectionable or indeed who themselves are having damaging impacts. Mm. How do you do that? I mean, that is something I think a lot of journalists struggle with and you get it in the, the question how you cover Donald Trump. And if you go too far in one direction, you're accused of normalising the Trump phenomenon. If you go in the other direction, you've just got lots of screamy journalism saying... How terrible. You know, sort of, yeah, terrible, terrible. He's a bad man, someone said to me the other day in a conversation three times. And I was like, well, yes, yes and. Well, well, I think you're probably right. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure you're right, but I'm not sure that that would advance the what to do about mm. it uh, very far. And it's really hard when people believe things very strongly yes. because they do think they're, I also think, well, you know, when the idea of sort of liberals, left liberals, whatever, you know, it's a bit unfair to put people in baskets, but what happened with Brexit and the view of people who didn't agree with them, certain parts of journalism, certain parts of politics mm. are like this. Is a, The reason is fundamentally, sometimes it's arrogance, it can be, but it's often much more that you're so convinced your ideas are right for society. Yeah. What can be wrong with a liberal open society? Well, of course, then anybody who stands up on the other side has to grate on your jar with yeah. you because you think they're doing harm. Yeah. But if you don't engage with it, in my view anyway, you create more. Yeah harm, more frustration, you get less debate and these yeah. groups just separate more and more. And that, so that's my, you asked if I had a sort of guiding vocation, I suppose it's, ugh, it's just keep talking really. Yeah. Uh, what have you changed since doing, or how have you changed since doing Across the Red Line? Do you approach things differently? The element of having conflict resolution, we have two conflict resolution helpers who come in just when the two people are about to go off into their fiery debate, because they're really hard to stop. You've probably heard it on air. Uh, this is what have heard me trying to pull it back, like two sort of racehorses going in opposite directions. And what's brilliant there is I say, well, well I've done my bit now. And you have Gabrielle Rifkin or uh, Louisa Weinstein, very different styles and different skill sets, but they both come from that world of getting people to not only listen to the other person, but there's a very clever thing, which, which sounds a bit tricksy, but actually I think is the core of the programme. It's just, I have to put your case uh, in my own voice, not Elizabeth thinks this, 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 because I'll always signal it. That's clearly crazy. Or she drinking. But I have to sort of own it yeah. and say, a view opposite to my life, my experience, what it yeah. is. And you'd be surprised how hard it is. And it's this whole kind of school of attentive listening absorption. I've tried to do it more, particularly in family mm. situations where you really want to say, just get on and do it because it's a good idea or don't do that because it's a bad idea or I've told you before. Now, I fail more often than I succeed, but I have tried just that thing of turning the globe around a bit and saying, from where you're sitting this seems like a really good idea. And you might even be right in a way that I can't see at the moment. Yeah. But on the whole, I do think maybe, you know, you should tidy room. <laughs> um, so I've tried to be a bit less kind of stuck in, I try to understand why people who seem to be acting irrationally may have something else going mm. on. I think I, a lot of quite rational, quite driven people, I'm a bit 
impatient. Sometimes if I think arguments are not good and I just wonder why they're being made. So I've tried to be a bit more listen Anne, thank you so much for speaking to me today on The Sacred. Oh, you've made me think about a lot, Elizabeth, and thank you very much for having me. It was, it was all pleasure. Thank you. So the first thing to know about this interview is I was a bit nervous about it because there's very little about Anne as a person available in public. She's had this long and illustrious career of interviewing other people and writing opinion pieces about policy ideas or culture. But as far as I could tell, uh, she's either never said yes to or never been asked to talk about herself in any particular depth. And so I went into the interview a bit worried that she wouldn't be comfortable with that, that um, I would feel like I was probing for uh, a sense of her as a person and that she, for whatever reason, didn't feel able to share that. So honestly, it was such a lovely surprise and very refreshing when she really volunteered quite a lot about her inner life and her values. I loved that phrase she used, lapsed but defensive, about her Catholicism. I think it probably will chime with quite a lot of people. Those early experiences with the Catholic Church have clearly really stayed with her and shaped her, given her a sense of um, the value of those traditions and stories, even if she doesn't always know how to position herself in relation to it. The, The way she talked about her sense of the sacred in relation to that did sound quite a lot like a a conscience, really, a sense of a check on the worst parts of herself. And so appreciated her being honest about sometimes being a bit ruthless. I think it's obvious that in some industries, in order to be successful, most people have to develop quite sharp elbows. Um, I think particularly for women and, and women of Anne's generation, a streak of ruthlessness may have been an avoidable thing that she had to develop in order to work in that area. And being honest about that and then talking about the limits of it and how she um, does sometimes worry that it means that she depersonalizes people. It's just that kind of honesty, I think, really helps us all. That those of you listening who know that you've got a slightly ruthless streak, <laughs> I find it very, um, it's very deep need in us, right, as humans to be recognised or to feel that sense of recognition when someone says something about our own deep experience and we say me too. And um, yeah, I just really valued that. Class assumptions, my goodness. Yeah. I try, I try and be honest. Speaking of which, I try and be honest on this show, both with guests where it feels appropriate and in these reflections about some of the things I'm learning and some of the prejudices and nonsense and unlovely parts of myself that this project throws up and surfaces. Um, And I do work in uh, tribalism and polarization and it just is sort of an unavoidable fact about human beings that we make assumptions about people and we cluster traits and we have associations. And in the UK, it probably sounds, we have quite a big listenership now outside Britain and the class stuff in the UK probably sounds a bit very weird. Um, But very often in the UK still, and honestly, I don't know where this comes from. It's just sort of ambient. There's a sort of class calculation. You know, what? how does someone speak? Uh... 
how do they dress? How do they present themselves? Um, and I, it's not, I don't think, out of a sort of like seeking to kowtow to the aristocracy or or anything. It's just one of the identity signifiers that we are constantly trying to work out who we're talking to, right? And and where to position them in our mental filing system and, and class is part of that. And I did just assume that Anne had been head girl at a private girls' school because she presents with that very particular forthright hearty confidence, which I really like, by the way. I would love the world to be run by those kind of women, frankly. Um, you know, who who have some of those characteristics, not just people who have come from that background, let's be clear. Um, but that's not her story. And it, it, it does, I think, usually feel healthy and helpful to surface it and to notice it in ourselves, maybe. Write and tell me. She spoke about her time at Oxford and I think we know that densely networked webs of friends are often found in positions of power Um, and that people cluster, right? We want, uh, now I'm writing a book, I realise there's loads of people in my life who've written a book right it is not it is not a mystery um the way we cluster and the way we often end up with friends in the same industries or in the same area of us it's just one of those things that anyone who follows uk politics will have pricked their ears up about because it's a it, it can sound worrying you know and went to university with boris she knew him as a hapless teenager how does that affect how she covers him for example like if they know if they all know each other can they tell we the people who don't know didn't go to university with them the truth and i i've sat with that reaction in me as someone who champions relationships and champions the fact that you are better able to stand a per, understand a person up close that you're be, better able to understand a person if you know their story and that your heart is likely to soften towards a person up close and if you know their story and if you've walked with them for any amount of time and that that is an unalloyed good. (laughs) Um, But it presses on that thing of what is journalism supposed to be doing? Is there such a thing as objectivity? I don't think so. And so where can a pre-existing relationship help us understand someone and where might actually that heart softening be a problem? That maybe sometimes in order to be good journalism... A journalist does need to treat a politician more of an object and less as a person. It's going against some very deep sacred values of me to say that, but it's a question that I'm asking. Where is it? Where might it be a good? Because I think the public debate often assumes it's a bad if people in our public life all know each other. And where might it actually be a problem that needs an eye kept on it? Um, I think Anne said this very meaningful thing about being in East Germany, seeing how the churches were real centres of resistance. And at its best, maybe that's what keeps me coming back to the often disappointing institutions of the church, that at its best, in times of darkness and crisis, faith communities can function as centres of resistance to tyranny, and they definitely did that in East Germany. And and asked this question, you know, would I have stood up against tyranny? Would I have refused to sell out my friends? Would I have resisted? Would I have been part of a resistance? Would I be part of the resistance if 
we were taken over by a tyrannical power. And I do think, along with what do you want people to say about you at your funeral, that's a really good question to be asking on the regular. Do I have the moral courage to resist evil? And I know that sounds grandiose and dramatic, but who knows what the future holds? (laughs) And developing that kind of character is a good in and of itself. We always need people of moral courage and integrity And I'm more and more convinced that we don't grow that kind of character accidentally, that we have to practice it. That one of the first is working out what are are our values that we want to stay loyal to, what is sacred to us personally or as part of a community. And then how do we stop the longshore drift happening, the the strong formation of a consumer individualistic culture? How do we create counter-formation to that in order to practice our values, to stay loyal to the things we want our life to be defined by, to develop moral courage. And for me, it is. It's my faith community. It's being part of a regular... uh, It's the scaffolding. It's It's the trellis. But I think it's unusual now, actually, for people to be members of those kind of communities. The majority of you as listeners maybe won't be. And so I'd, I'd love to know where where do we find places to practice moral courage? Where do we find centres of resistance to the way our culture forms us into the worst forms of ourselves, into the people we don't want to be? It's a big question that I've posed there. <laughs> um, I really valued and being very honest about a kind of patchwork spirituality that comes and goes, church that comes and goes, the sort of meaningfulness of some of her yoga practice, praying for her kids, these very ordinary, very beautiful parts of human life. And I I felt sad that she felt she needed to apologise for that almost, that I think that's probably closer to where most people are on their seeking of the sacred and their seeking of meaning. And I don't want to devalue that um it may be that I heard a hunger and have a something a bit more robust and you know great but um again naming naming our normal and stating our obvious can be very liberating for other people and finally this sense of the best thing you can do if you want to be a kind of depolarizing person is to state things from another person's perspective to put yourself in their shoes it's such an old cliche but many of our cliches are like deeply profound truths that we just need to find ways to restate so we can hear, we can really hear them. Um, if you had lived someone's life, if you were forced to tell their story from their perspective, how would it shift you? And what are the limits of that? Sometimes I worry if I get too, if I do this job for too long, if I get too good at this, I will just have no, no principles, <laughs> no solid ground of what I think. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think in the main, it's a way we grow. We grow our souls. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and our production team are Dan Turner and Fiona Howarth. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley. I'd love you to get in touch. Uh, Let me know what you think. Share an episode when someone sends an episode to a friend so that they can talk about it, that is like mm, chef's kiss. That is very uh, close to the heart of what we want to be stimulating and provoking. Deeper, better, more meaningful, more human conversations between people. Um, I'd love you to let me know, but if you don't, I'm still glad it's happening. I have a substack. I would love you to follow that if you are interested in my wider writing. Um, 
find us on social media, leave us a glowing review <laughs> uh, if you want to. That's all for me for today. I will speak to you next episode.